Section 11 of A Journey from This World to the Next. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. A Journey from This World to the Next by Henry Fielding. Book 1, Chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 21 Julian's Adventures in the Post of a Soldier. I was born at Cayenne in Normandy. My mother's name was Matilda. As for my father, I am not so certain, for the good woman on her deathbed assured me she herself could bring her guest to no greater certainty than to five of Duke William's captains. When I was no more than thirteen, being indeed a surprising stout boy of my age, I enlisted into the army of Duke William, afterwards known by the name of William the Conqueror, landed with him at Pemisey, or Pemsey in Sussex, and was present at the famous Battle of Hastings. At the first onset it was impossible to describe my consternation, which was heightened by the fall of two soldiers who stood by me, but this soon abated, and by degrees, as my blood grew warm, I thought no more of my own safety, but fell on the enemy with great fury, and did a good deal of execution, till, unhappily, I received a wound in my thigh, which rendered me unable to stand any longer, so that I now lay among the dead, and was constantly exposed to the danger of being trampled to death as well by my fellow-soldiers as by the enemy. However, I had the fortune to escape it, and continued the remaining part of the day and the night following on the ground. The next morning, the Duke sending out parties to bring off the wounded, I was found almost expiring with loss of blood, notwithstanding which, as immediate care was taken to dress my wounds, youth and a robust constitution stood my friends and i recovered after a long and tedious indisposition and was able again to use my limbs and do my duty as soon as dover was taken i was conveyed thither with all the rest of the sick and wounded here i recovered of my wound but fell afterwards into a violent flux which when it departed left me so weak that it was long before I could regain my strength. And what most afflicted me was that, during my whole illness, when I languished under want as well as sickness, I had the daily mortification to see and hear the riots and excess of my fellow-soldiers, who had happily escaped safe from the battle. I was no sooner well than I was ordered into garrison at Dover Castle. The officers here fared very indifferently, but the private men much worse. We had great scarcity of provisions, and what was yet more intolerable, were so closely confined for want of room, four of us being obliged to lie on the same bundle of straw, that many died and most sickened. Here I had remained about four months, when 
one night we were alarmed with the arrival of the Earl of Boulogne, who had come over privily from France, and endeavoured to surprise the castle. The design proved ineffectual, for the garrison, making a brisk sally, most of the men were tumbled down the precipice, and he returned with a very few back to France. In this action, however, I had the misfortune to come off with a broken arm. It was so shattered that, besides a great deal of pain and misery which I endured in my cure, I was disabled for upwards of three months. Soon after my recovery, I had contracted an amour with a young woman whose parents lived near the garrison, and were in much better circumstances than I had reason to expect should give their consent to the match. However, as she was extremely fond of me, and I was indeed distractedly enamoured of her, they were prevailed on to comply with her wishes, and the day was fixed for our marriage. On the evening preceding, while I was exulting with the eager expectation of the happiness I was the next day to enjoy, I received orders to march early in the morning towards Windsor, where a large army was to be formed, at the head of which the king intended to march into the west. Any person who hath ever been in love may easily imagine what I felt in my mind on receiving those orders, and what still heightened my torments was that the commanding officer would not permit any one to go out of the garrison that evening, so that I had not even an opportunity of taking leave of my beloved. The morning came which was to have put me in the possession of my wishes, but, alas, the scene was now changed, and all the hopes which I had raised were now so many ghosts to haunt, and furies to torment me. It was now the midst of winter, and very severe weather for the season, when we were obliged to make very long and fatiguing marches, in which we suffered all the inconveniences of cold and hunger. The night in which I expected to riot in the arms of my beloved mistress, I was obliged to take up with the lodging on the ground, exposed to the inclemencies of a rigid frost, nor could I obtain the least comfort of sleep, which shunned me as its enemy. In short, the horrors of that night are not to be described, or perhaps imagined, they made such an impression on my soul that I was forced to be dipped three times in the river Lethe to prevent my remembering it in the characters which I afterwards performed in the flesh. Here I interrupted Julian for the first time, and told him no such dipping had happened to me in my voyage from one world to the other, but he satisfied me by saying, that this only happened to those spirits which returned into the flesh, in order to prevent that reminiscence which Plato mentions, and which would otherwise cause great confusion in the other world. He then proceeded as follows. We continued a very laborious march to Exeter, 
which we were ordered to besiege. The town soon surrendered, and his majesty built a castle there, which he garrisoned with his Normans, and unhappily I had the misfortune to be one of the number. Here we were confined closer than I had been at Dover, for as the citizens were extremely disaffected, we were never suffered to go without the walls of the castle, nor indeed could we, unless in large bodies, without the utmost danger. We were likewise kept to continual duty, nor could any solicitations prevail with the commanding officer to give me a month's absence to visit my love, from whom I had no opportunity of hearing in all my long absence. However, in the spring, the people, being more quiet, and another officer of a gentler temper, succeeding to the principal command, I obtained leave to go to Dover. But, alas, what comfort did my long journey bring me? I found the parents of my darling in the utmost misery at her loss, for she had died, about a week before my arrival, of a consumption, which they imputed to her pining at my sudden departure. I now fell into the most violent and almost raving fit of despair. I cursed myself, the king, and the whole world, which no longer seemed to have any delight for me. I threw myself on the grave of my deceased love, and lay there without any kind of sustenance for two whole days. At last, hunger, together with the persuasions of some people who took pity on me, prevailed with me to quit that situation, and refresh myself with food. They then persuaded me to return to my post, and abandon a place where almost every object I saw recalled ideas to my mind which, as they said, I should endeavour with my utmost force to expel from it. This advice at length succeeded the rather as the mother and father of my beloved refused to see me looking on me as the innocent but certain cause of the death of their only child the loss of one we tenderly love as it is one of the most bitter and biting evils which attend human life so it wants the lenitive which palliates and softens every other calamity. I mean that great reliever, hope. No man can be so totally undone, but that he may still cherish expectation. But this deprives us of all such comfort, nor can anything but time alone lessen it. This, however, in most minds, is sure to work a slow but effectual remedy. So did it in mine. For within a twelve-month I was entirely reconciled to my fortune, and soon after absolutely forgot the object of a passion from which I had promised myself such extreme happiness, and in the disappointment of which I had experienced such inconceivable misery. At the expiration of the month I returned to my garrison at Exeter, 
where I was no sooner arrived than I was ordered to march into the north, to oppose a force there levied by the earls of Chester and Northumberland. We came to York, where his majesty pardoned the heads of the rebels, and very severely punished some who were less guilty. It was particularly my lot to be ordered to seize a poor man who had never been out of his house, and convey him to prison. I detested this barbarity, yet was obliged to execute it. Nay, though no reward would have bribed me, in a private capacity, to have acted such a part, yet so much sanctity is there in the commands of a monarch, or general, to a soldier, that I performed it without reluctance, nor had the tears of his wife and family any prevalence with me. But this, which was a very small piece of mischief, in comparison with many of my barbarities afterwards, was, however, the only one which ever gave me any uneasiness. For when the king led us afterwards into Northumberland, to revenge those people's having joined with Osborne the Dane in his invasion, and orders were given us to commit what ravages we could, I was forward in fulfilling them, and, among some lesser cruelties, I remember it yet with sorrow, I ravished a woman, murdered a little infant playing in her lap, and then burned her house. In short, for I have no pleasure in this part of my relation, I had my share in all the cruelties exercised on those poor wretches, which were so grievous, that for sixty miles together, between York and Durham, not a single house, church, or any other public or private edifice was left standing. We had pretty well devoured the country, when we were ordered to march to the Isle of Eli, to oppose Hereward, a bold and stout soldier, who had under him a very large body of rebels, who had the impudence to rise against their king and conqueror, I talk now in the same style I did then, in defense of their liberties, as they called them. These were soon subdued, but as I happened, more to my glory than my comfort, to be posted in that part through which Hereward cut his way, I received a dreadful cut on the forehead, a second on the soldier, and was run through the body with a pike. I languished a long time with these wounds, which made me incapable of attending the king into Scotland. However, I was able to go over with him afterwards into Normandy in his expedition against Philip, who had taken the opportunity of the troubles in England to invade that province. Those few Normans who had survived their wounds and had remained in the Isle of Eli were all of our nation who went, the rest of his army being all composed of English. In a skirmish near the town of Mans, my leg was broke and so shattered that it was forced to be cut off. I was now disabled from serving longer in the army, 
and, accordingly, being discharged from the service, I retired to the place of my nativity, where, in extreme poverty and frequent bad health, from the many wounds I had received, I dragged on a miserable life to the age of sixty-three, my only pleasure being to recount the feats of my youth, in which narratives I generally exceeded the truth. It would be tedious and unpleasant to recount to you the several miseries I suffered after my return to Cayenne. Let it suffice, they were so terrible, that they induced Minos to compassionate me, and, notwithstanding the barbarities I had been guilty of in Northumberland, to suffer me to go once more back to earth. CHAPTER Twenty Two. WHAT HAPPENED TO JULIAN IN THE PERSON OF A TAILOR Fortune now stationed me in a character which the ingratitude of mankind hath put them on ridiculing, though they owe to it not only a relief from the inclemencies of cold, to which they would otherwise be exposed, but likewise a considerable satisfaction of their vanity. The character, I mean, was that of a tailor, which, if we consider it with due attention, must be confessed to have in it great dignity and importance, for, in reality, who constitutes the different degrees between men but the tailor? The prince, indeed, gives the title, but it is the tailor who makes the man. To his labours are owing the respect of crowds, and the awe which great men inspire into their beholders, though these are too often unjustly attributed to other motives. Lastly, the admiration of the fair is most commonly to be placed to his account. I was just set up in my trade when I made three suits of fine clothes for King Stephen's coronation. I question whether the person who wears the rich coat hath so much pleasure and vanity in being admired in it, as we tailors have from that admiration, and perhaps a philosopher would say he is not so well entitled to it. I bustled on the day of the ceremony, through the crowd, and it was with incredible delight I heard several say, as my clothes walked by, Bless me! Was ever anything so fine as the Earl of Devonshire? Sure, he and Sir Hugh Bigot are the two best-dressed men I ever saw. Now, both those suits were of my making. There would indeed be infinite pleasure in working for the courtiers, as they are generally genteel men, and show one's clothes to the best advantage, was it not for one small discouragement, that is, that they never pay? I solemnly protest, though I lost almost as much by the court in my life as I got by the city, I never carried a suit into the latter with half the satisfaction which I have done to the former, though from that I was certain of ready money, and from this... 
almost as certain of no money at all. Courtiers may, however, be divided into two sorts, very essentially different from each other, into those who never intend to pay for their clothes, and those who do intend to pay for them, but never happen to be able. Of the latter sort are many of those young gentlemen whom we equip out for the army, and who are, unhappily for us, cut off before they arrive at preferment. This is the reason that tailors, in time of war, are mistaken for politicians by their inquisitiveness into the event of battles, one campaign very often proving the ruin of half a dozen of us. I am sure I had frequent reason to curse that fatal battle of Cardigan, when the Welsh defeated some of King Stephen's best troops, and where many a good suit of mine, unpaid for, fell to the ground. The gentlemen of this honourable calling have fared much better in later ages than when I was of it, for now it seems the fashion is, when they apprehend that their customer is not in the best of circumstances, if they are not paid as soon as they carry home the suit, they charge him in their book as much again as it is worth, and then send a gentleman with a small scrip of parchment to demand the money. If this be not immediately paid, the gentleman takes the bow with him to his house, where he locks him up till the tailor is contented. But in my time, these scrips of parchment were not in use, and if the beau disliked paying for his clothes, as very often happened, we had no method of compelling him. In several of the characters which I have related to you, I apprehend I have sometimes forgot myself, and considered myself as really interested as I was when I personated them on earth. I have just now caught myself in the fact, for I have complained to you as bitterly of my customers as I formerly used to do when I was the tailor. But, in reality, though there were some few persons of very great quality, and some others, who never paid their debts, yet those were but a few, and I had a method of repairing this loss. My customers I divided under three heads, those who paid ready money, those who paid slow, and those who never paid at all. The first of these I considered apart by themselves, as persons by whom I got a certain, but small profit. The last two I lumped together, making those who paid slow contribute to repair my losses by those who did not pay at all. Thus, upon the whole, I was a very inconsiderable loser, and might have left a fortune to my family, had I not launched forth into expenses, which swallowed up all my gains. I had a wife and two children. These, indeed, I kept frugally enough, for I half-starved them. But I kept a mistress in a finer way, for whom I had a country house, pleasantly situated on the Thames, elegantly fitted up, 
and neatly furnished. This woman might very properly be called my mistress, for she was most absolutely so, and, though her tenure was no higher than by my will, she domineered as tyrannically as if my chains had been riveted in the strongest manner. To all this I submitted, not through any adoration of her beauty, which was indeed but indifferent. Her charms consisted in little wantonnesses, which she knew admirably well to use in hours of dalliance, and which, I believe, are of all things the most delightful to a lover. She was so profusely extravagant that it seemed as if she had an actual intent to ruin me. This I am sure of. If such had been her real intention, she could have taken no proper way to accomplish it. Nay, I myself might appear to have had the same view, for besides this extravagant mistress and my country house, I kept, likewise, a brace of hunters, rather for that it was fashionable so to do, than for any great delight I took in the sport, which I very little attended, not for want of leisure, for few noblemen had so much. All the work I ever did was taking measure, and that only of my greatest and best customers. I scarce ever cut a piece of cloth in my life, nor was indeed much more able to fashion a coat than any gentleman in the kingdom. This made a skilful servant too necessary to me. He knew I must submit to any terms with him, or any treatment from him. He knew it was easier for him to find another such a tailor as me, than for me to procure such another workman as him. For this reason he exerted the most notorious and cruel tyranny, seldom giving me a civil word, nor could the utmost condescension on my side, though attended with continual presents and rewards, and raising his wages, content or please him. In a word, he was as absolutely my master as was ever an ambitious, industrious prime minister over an indolent and voluptuous king. All my other journeymen paid more respect to him than to me, for they considered my favour as a necessary consequence of obtaining his. These were the most remarkable occurrences while I acted this part. Minos hesitated a few moments, and then bid me get back again, without assigning any reason. End of section 10 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox.